The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we're finished up now, um, as I mentioned last week, with the particular topic we'd been looking at since September, the seven factors of awakening. I want to just position sort of where we are for people who are relatively new. So we've been looking at this talk the Buddha gave. It's not even clear whether it was one talk or just later centuries put together. But basically it's the Buddhist instructions on mindfulness. And so as you might imagine, it's a major talk in the Buddhist tradition because mindfulness is such a central part. This developing this steady, clear, continuous presence is really at the heart of what the Buddha suggests as a way of freeing up our lives. So in this talk, or in these instructions on mindfulness, the Buddha talks about being mindful of the body, being mindful of feeling tone, like the pleasantness or unpleasantness of experience, being mindful of the general shape or texture of the mind. And then the last of the four ways to be mindful, I guess we'd say, is to be mindful of this experience in terms of some maps, conceptual maps the Buddha used that are designed to help illuminate our experience. So over the course of maybe six months, we've been going through these maps. There's a lot of maps. The first map on the five hindrances is, okay, let's look at our experience in terms of whether certain hindering qualities are present or not in our mind. Like, is there greed present or not? Aversion present or not? Dullness present or not? Restlessness present or not? Doubt present or not? So that's really instructive, just to first recognize that there are these hindering, these qualities of mind that hinder the steadiness and clarity of awareness. And it's really useful to know, are they operating right now in our mind? Like is greed right now operating, really trying to get what Mark is saying? That mind's, the mind's uh, identification with that greediness actually gets in the way of the mind being clear. Or aversive, like I shouldn't have come, I'm too tired to be here, why am I here? Or restlessness, or dullness, or doubt. And then the the next two maps have to do with the, they're called the five aggregates and the six sense gates, but they're just ways for a mind, like our mind, to relate to this experience in a non-personal way. So instead of thinking, here I am, Mark, at Common Ground on Sunday night, and this is who I am, and this is what I like, and this is who I'm not, and this is what I think about you, which is our normal way, ordinary way of positioning ourselves using ideas or concepts, the Buddha says, well, instead we could understand this body-mind thing here in terms of seeing as being known. So in a very direct, subjective sense, what this is is the seeing that's being known, the hearing right now that's being heard, the smelling and tasting that's being smelt and tasted, the touches that are being felt, and the thoughts that are being known. So these six things, this is the six sense gates, 
these six things being known. You see how that is a very impersonal way of understanding what this is, what it is to be Mark here at Common Ground on Sunday night. There's seeing being known, hearing being known, touches being known, thoughts being known, smells and tastes being known. And that's it. There's really nothing else that this is but those six things being known in some combination. Right? And the five aggregates is similar in the sense of breaking down this experience as a, as a human being into the activity of the mind and the activity of the body. And I won't go into it because we talked a lot about it in the past. And you can always listen to those talks on our website. They're all, all the talks here at the center are recorded and put up on the website. And then after that, we looked at the seven factors of awakening. So that's what we've been doing since September, for those of you who've been coming in the fall. We've been looking at not the hindering qualities of mind, but what are the supporting qualities, inherent qualities of mind, that when they're there, active in the mind and in balance, that means the mind is set up to see things as they actually are, to wake up and to have insight. You know, so it's to put aside a view or a way of being that's based on cultural conditioning, let's say, and see things more directly, understand things as they are. So in Buddhism, we, this is a big deal to have insight because what gets in the way of happiness or being a skillful, loving, wise human being is we're not seeing things as they are. And so we're acting based on our misperceptions, which is problematic, to say the least. And we get a world like this, with all of its injustices and confusion and violence and greed, because we misperceive. Like we misperceive in the sense of feeling apart. When I feel apart from you, when I've been able to separate myself from you because you look differently, you have a different class, you know, you're wealthy or you're poor or different than me in some way, then I can justify exploiting you, I can justify being aggressive or dismissive or violent even, because I'm able to separate, make myself different or apart. So it's really the root of all the injustices in this world is this wrong view that arises from not seeing things as they are. So we looked at these seven factors of mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration or stillness, and equanimity. And that really sets up this next map. So again, this is a map, a conceptual model the Buddha taught that we use to illuminate our actual experience. Any of these I've mentioned thus far, including the one we're going to talk about tonight and for the next month or so, we could spend decades talking about it. We could become a PhD in it. But the point of these maps isn't to think about it in terms of metaphysical truths. It's really to use it to illuminate our actual subjective experience of, of being a human being, of having a mind and body. So this next map is called the Four Noble Truths. And even that phrase, Noble Truths, is sort of a setup for us. You know, it can trigger in us 
oh, we're being asked to believe something, the Four Noble Truths, that's what's true. We should believe in the Four Noble Truths. But it's really not how it's set up. And who knows even if when that phrase, Noble Truths, sort of got tagged on to these teachings. It's really meant to be a mechanism, like a useful map that coming out of a mind, let's say the Buddha's mind, had some real clarity, and that mind came up with this map as an act of compassion to help us have some clarity about what this is, to overcome habits of misperceiving. So, like, for example, the first noble truth is there is dukkha. Dukkha is the word for the uneasiness, the uncertainty, the unsatisfactoriness of all sense experience. Kind of a provocative statement because, I mean, we know that some sense experience is limited or unsatisfying, like knee pain or being bored or, you know, we could probably list 10, 20,000 different experiences that are limited, unsatisfying, uncertain, unpleasant, stressful. But all sense experience is limited. So this is something we have to wake up to. Like We need to be interested enough in sense experience. And any sense experience will do it. Doesn't, we don't have to wait until we're miserable. We could take a moment where we're feeling like really nice conditions warm, loved, safe, well-fed. And then we could look, okay, the Buddha says all conditioned experience is limited. So we look at that experience. Or, you know, we could interview people who have exactly what we want. You know, if you want wealth, we could interview the wealthy people. If you want to be liked, you could interview all the people who are liked. If you want to be beautiful, you can interview all the people who you see as beautiful. And and you could have a sophisticated survey, interview technique, and you, it would be interesting to see, like, having achieved whatever it is we want, are they happy? Is that happiness stable? They've fortunately done more research recently about, I think some of the researchers call it like uh, something like the happiness set point. And they do, ex- you know... Um, surveys or investigations of people who won the lottery or get cancer. So really good things, I mean, in some sense, really good things and really bad things happen to people. And they find that in terms of people reporting their level of happiness that there are spikes if something really good happens or drops if something really terrible happens. But actually very quickly, I don't know, it's, it's, I think it's a matter of you know, a handful of months or for sure not much more than a year, people's happiness, the way they report their happiness, returns to the set point, which is sort of interesting. So, our job as a practitioner is to, this is the Buddha's first talk, you know, and as the story goes, it's a really wonderful story. He had this deep insight under the proverbial Bodhi tree, the tree that he sat under, after realizing the limitations of ascetic practices and started to eat a more healthy diet, left his friends, or his friends left him because they thought he had gone 
gotten soft. And he realized rejecting life because of I get attached, re- rejecting sense experience, pleasant sense experience, because there's a tendency to get attached to it, isn't helpful. Yeah, it's the attachment that's the problem. Not having a comfortable bed or a nice meal or good friends. There's nothing wrong with the pleasant things that happen in life. This is sort of an interesting dynamic in a lot of spiritual traditions like how do we relate, how should we relate, what is the skillful way to relate to good fortune? Should we feel guilty when good things happen to us? Should we think we're saved because this is happening? Or what is the right attitude about good things happening? Well, one of the things, you know, just in terms of the Buddha's life and how he taught, that he says he understood, he came to understand, is that being afraid of sense experience, the pleasantness of sense experience, and running from it or denying yourself it isn't helpful as a like complete strategy. I mean, clearly it can be useful to skip a mill every once in a while to get, just as a way to investigate how much attachment we have to having three meals a day. You know, where did that get written down? You know, that we need three meals a day. But it's amazing if you just say to yourself, okay, just as an experiment, I'm not going to eat lunch today or I'm not going to have dinner today. Because we see how much attachment there is when we decide to forego it. It's not that it would be wrong to have dinner, but it's so interesting to see the dependency on dinner. So it's the dependency or the attachment that causes the suffering, not having a nice home or whatever other sense pleasure that we have available to us in our lives. So anyway, the Buddha had this deep awakening. And then for a couple months, he reflected on what he had come to understand. Not conceptually, not figuring it out by thinking, but directly seeing something in experience. And then he thought about it afterward and thought about sharing it, talking about it to other people in a way that might be helpful and wasn't clear whether he could articulate it. But after a while, he was moved to try. So he sought out those uh, five other people that he had been practicing with earlier when he was doing a lot of ascetic practices. And they were also long-time practitioners, but had a, a strong inclination that asceticism was the way. So the Buddha tracked them down after a number of weeks. And he gave this talk on the Four Noble Truths, his first Dharma talk, his first talk about this path of awakening. And the interesting thing is the first thing he said to them just kind of to clarify, first he said what they already knew, they all knew. He said, thinking that you're going to find some kind of permanent happiness through sense pleasure, through sense experience, it's not the way. No, being hardcore ascetics, they already knew this. That was the whole point of becoming, you know, looking, investigating asceticism, is seeing the limitations of wealth, of power, of youth, and all the things we generally, as a culture and as individuals, we generally bank on these things. Even a lot of us in the room, we probably know the limitations, but what else are we going to use our life for if not to accumulate these things 
that are like sand going through our fingers. No matter how much wealth I collect, no matter how much respect I get from people, none of that I can hold on to. None of that I can sort of capture in some lasting forever kind of way. So that's his opening line, basically. That doesn't lead. And they, you know, okay, yeah, we got that. And then he said, nor is rejecting life, you know, mortifying yourself, rejecting sense experience, sense pleasures, nor is that going to lead anywhere of lasting value. So maybe then, who knows, maybe he got their attention. And he calls this neither that nor this other, the middle way. But remember, the middle way doesn't mean it's somewhere between indulging in sense experience and rejecting sense experience. It's neither of those. So we need a different relationship to sense experience. Not being afraid of the sense experiences that come our way. When it's pleasant and it doesn't harm ourselves or others to receive the pleasant experience, then we let it in. If it's unpleasant and we can do something that doesn't harm ourselves or others to get rid of the unpleasant, we do. If we're really cold and it doesn't harm anybody to put a sweater on, there's nothing wrong with putting a sweater on. But we're cultivating this middle way. And this is what the Buddha means. It's really a profound shift in view. Because as you know, conditioned as we are by our culture, we strongly think that happiness, we always equate happiness to collecting certain sense experiences, right? When you imagine yourself happy, it's always in terms of having things. Right? You picture yourself, even if it's like having peace, inner peace, but it's some attainment, getting something. And even if it's something like inner peace, it's like, yeah, but we want to be in a very peaceful meadow with a light breeze and wildflowers and no ticks and, you know, and a few other things. So, but how about a happiness, a peace, a release that actually is arising out of a shift in relationship to sense experience. So the happiness, we say, is unconditioned. It's not about what sense experiences we have, but it's about the heart, right now, in this moment, not being dependent on the sense experiences that are arising. So it's a happiness of release, the heart or the mind releasing its dependence. And even intellectually now, just as a thought, a thought experiment, we can just imagine what that would be like as a living being to not be dependent on what is the way it is now or what comes our way in the future. I mean, wouldn't that be a relief? Like whether we get cancer or we don't get cancer, or whether we have enough for retirement or we don't, or whether the earth starts to really heat up and things radically change and it gets really chaotic or it doesn't. Or whether the country finally wakes up to some of the injustices and this conversation doesn't get suppressed and we start making some real changes about 
difference and our cultural conditioning and the fear we have about differences. So no matter how it goes, can we imagine a heart that's willing to be right in the middle no matter how it unfolds? A heart that's willing to be sensitive and kind and happy and free no matter the conditions and how they unfold. So that's what the Buddha is pointing to and that's really what the middle way uh, means. It's a relationship, a radically different relationship of independence or not dependent on conditions. But remember, to be not dependent means we have to be intimate with the conditions. I mean, it'd be very easy for me to say, I'm not dependent on what's going on in you know, Tanzania or Cambodia, right? Because I don't have a clue really what's going on there. So it's easy to say I, I'm not dependent. You know, if things are going well there, I'm not dependent on it. Or if things are really tragic there. But it's a whole nother thing to be really present with something like knee pain or indigestion or feeling humiliated and to be independent, not dependent, my happiness not dependent on that feeling of humiliation or those painful sensations in my knee. What is that experience? That kind of independence. And so that's why, like, in terms of this next map we're going to be investigating for a month or so, called the Four Noble Truths, that's why the first step, it's really the first move, as the Buddha teaches. Well, I shouldn't say that. Generally speaking, the Buddha wouldn't even teach the Four Noble Truths until people had some stability in their lives. You know, if somebody is in deep poverty or, or living in a society where they're being oppressed, taken advantage of, made to feel uh, sort of less than, and then you go and you tell them about an unconditioned happiness, like you can be happy no matter the conditions, it's really going to not land well with them. So, generally speaking, when the Buddha was teaching, if people were experiencing a lot of overwhelm in their life, a lot of suffering, one of the first things he would teach them is how to stabilize, how to find some happiness in your life. How to cultivate attitudes, how to become empowered to create what we would call ordinary happiness. You know, where... Basically, we've, we're able to pay enough attention to cause and effect that no matter what's going on, at least our participation is improving our conditions because we understand everything is unfolding lawfully. So even if I'm in a really difficult position, how can, like complaining about it doesn't improve the situation. Blaming other people doesn't improve the other situation, even if in a sense they're to blame. What really improves a situation is to whatever degree a person can study cause and effect. What are the supporting causes that keeps my circumstances oppressive? What are the supporting causes that I can actually affect? Then affect them. Right? So that's 
one of the things we can do when we're feeling oppressed or in a difficult situation is we can find ways to let generosity move. I know it sounds a little strange, but if you actually meet people who are in difficult straits and you meet people who are in difficult straits who aren't really suffering, it's because they're generous. right? They found a way to feel full of generosity even in their difficult circumstances, whether it's being loving and kind, that expression of generosity, or caring. I mean, there's lots of examples. You could have been around, for example, your grandmother when she was dying, and you walk in the room and she wants to take care of you, right? I mean, a simple example like that, where she's finding some basic happiness in being a generous, kind person, even though her life might have a lot of pain or confusion or whatever in that moment. So, generally speaking, this radical teaching on the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering, there's a cause, and the cause is right here in our hearts. We are constructing mental resistance to the conditions. We're constructing or activating our own struggle with the conditions right here in our mind. And that can cease. That's the third noble truth. And there's a way to live that supports the cessation, the releasing or the dropping away of all the little and big ways we struggle with the conditions. So the freedom from conditions is available. But like I said, mostly that teaching lands well when we have relative comfort in life and we discover that we're still a suffering human being. I mean, a lot of us are perfect examples where we're sort of Americans living in a relatively safe place with relative affluence and relative health and it's not easy being a human being. And so that's very interesting. That makes us interested in, well, if happiness isn't about having relative safety, relative health, relative affluence, relative this and that, then where is it? And it starts getting more and more suspicious as we start, if we're fortunate enough, getting some of the things we always thought if we got, we'd be happy. And we get it and temporarily we're happy. Oh, I got that. I got that job. Or that person likes me. Or, But it doesn't really shift the quality of happiness in our lives. So then we're ready for this teaching on the Four Noble Truths. Hey, people, you know, the Buddha says to us, hey, all conditioned experience, all sense experience, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, all of it is limited. And the Buddha makes the distinction. Sometimes the way this gets translated is incorrect. It's, it's translated as all experience is suffering. But the Buddha didn't say that. He says it's all dukkha, unsatisfying or uncertain or limited. It becomes suffering when we start to have a problem with the limited nature of sense experience. There's a funny story. 
that uh, I think I heard first from Ed Brown, a Zen teacher, and something he said. It's not a true story, so it's just made up. And it's about a farmer who went to see the Buddha and complained to the Buddha that it isn't easy being a farmer because I'm not in charge of weather, and on top of it I have a family, and it's not easy being a family person and having kids and a partner. So I need some help. And the Buddha looked at him and said, well, you know, everybody has 83 problems. And there's really nothing you can do. And even if somehow you manage to get rid of one, another one would pop up. And this, you can imagine, didn't sit well with the farmer who had you know, taken a lot of time to track down the Buddha and find him. And only to hear this. And he kind of blew up. Like, why would anybody come to see you if all you're going to say is everybody has 83 problems? And he stormed off. And as he was walking away, the Buddha said, well, everybody does have 83 problems, and I can't really do anything about that, but I can help you with your 84th problem. And you might guess what the 84th problem is, not liking having 83 problems. (laughs) And this is a lot like this set of teachings on the Four Noble Truths. We're all human beings. We're living in an uncertain world, Everyone here, you know, some of us have more of the traditional comforts in life. Some of us have less of them. But whatever we have, it's uncertain how it's going to be tomorrow or even in an hour. But we're all having our own version of 83 problems. And the question is whether you're a relatively uh, fortunate person or a relatively speaking unfortunate person. We all have that 84th problem. We don't like the problems or the limitations we are aware of, right? Is there anybody who's okay with the limitations of life? Anybody experiencing full and complete and unshakable release of your heart right now? Probably not. So what's the Buddhist solution to the 84th problem, right? not liking the limitations of life. Well, we have to, through practice, we have to realize that there's an option there. Like, does the limitations of sense experience, like the limitations of having a body, having a body is limited. Sometimes it's really pleasant having a body, and sometimes it's not. Having relationships is a limited experience, right? It's uncertain. Whatever kind of relationship with a mother, with a father, with a lover, with a son or daughter, these experiences of being in relationship to others is limited. It's uncertain. We're not in control. We can't govern it. We can't make it perfect continuously. And we often suffer trying to make our relationships make us happy. I often bring up this line from uh, Susan... Piver, author, Buddhist author, where she was relaying a story about a relationship. I forget if it was her relationship or a friend of hers, but anyway. And it was problematic, you know, in the dynamic. And so she asked a good friend if he thought that relationship could work, you know, given the way that it was coming together and each of the personalities and such. And this good friend had a great answer. Well, of course it can work. As long as you you don't expect it to make you happy. 
And that is actually, even though it's a little funny, it's such a great teaching about relationships and life generally. Like, life can work for us human beings if we don't expect sense experiences to be the cause for happiness. Because then I'm going to common ground in order to be happy. Well, that's a setup for betrayal and disappointment, right? Or I'm getting involved in this relationship in order to be happy. Or I'm going to lose weight in order to be happy. Or I'm going to become a meditator in order to be happy. Well, it's a setup. Unless we understand that I'm going to look at experience, I'm going to look at the way it is in order to figure out whether it needs to be different than it is. Maybe not grasping, not struggling with the conditions is the happiness that's available. And one thing that's really important to get about this first noble truth, the Buddha is not saying hey, you know what? Things change. Things are uncertain. Experience is limited. The sooner you accept that, the easier it will be on you. So, like the culmination of religious, spiritual experiences, resignation. Like, yeah, it's a screwed up situation, but denying it doesn't work. So just accept it. You know, that's not what the Buddha is saying. It sounds that way, but he's really talking about a full and complete release. So what's left after that full and complete release of the heart is a natural love that knows no boundaries. It doesn't run out. It isn't contrived in any way. It's a natural inclusivity and sweetness and tenderness of the heart and a great skill on participating in the world, engaging the world, the messy, imperfect world, with fearlessness and skill. Because my seeing what should be done in the moment isn't being distorted by neurotic fears and neediness. Because the heart is feeling fearless and happy the happiness of non-dependence. But you see, it doesn't make sense to us because we look at the world in a particular way. You know, when I look at, I imagine my life, I think about myself as this individual who is dependent on the experiences that I'm having. I own. We feel in a sense that I own, you know, like the sensations I'm feeling in my body right now. It's like they're mine. So we have this very deep, unquestioned idea of being dependent on the stream of sense experiences that we have as a living being. But actually, it's just a choice. It's just one way of understanding. And it's a way of understanding that comes with a lot of, or not even a lot, endless stress. Because we're endlessly trying to get something that the world can never deliver. The world can never make us happy. It wasn't built to make us happy. That's just an idea that our minds have constructed. That somehow the world of sense experience, if I just get it right, if I just organize it right, will make me happy. 
but it never does. But we keep looking because that's all we know. You know that song, we keep looking for love in all the wrong places. We look for it in the world of sense experience instead of in the activity of letting things be or the activity of letting go or the activity of non-grasping. It's like the last place we would look. It always seems appropriate to grasp differently or grasp more. That will do it. I just need to try harder. If I just try harder, I'll get what I want. But we always end up being disappointed. So the first noble truth, there are three insights there that the Buddha is suggesting we take up. There is dukkha. There is this experience, if we look, of experience being limited, all sense experience being limited or uncertain or unsatisfying. If we look, even pleasant experience is unsatisfying and limited. If we look. But we have to look. If you ever notice when things are really pleasant, we tend not to want to pay, investigate too much. It's like, don't ask me to settle in. Because I might realize that this isn't what I think it is. And we want, we prefer that the illusion that this is great, even though it's just what it is, you know, whatever it is. Maybe some of you went, wasn't there a Vikings game today? Was there? Oh, no sports fans in the room? There was? Yeah. So maybe that's a big deal for you. Obviously not for many of us. <laughs> Why are we building that stadium? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for meditation, sure. You know, but, you know, if you find yourself doing something that's supposed to be fun, and then you just have a moment of mindfulness right in the middle of it, you just sort of settle in. You realize, I mean, it may be okay, but you realize, this isn't really fun in the way that I imagined it was fun. I can whip up the idea that it's fun. I can whip up the idea that I'm having fun. But if I'm honest, it's just what it is. And this is true for everything. Pleasant. I noticed this time, you know, it's like, I like my entertainment and, uh, you know, good movies or good television programs. We don't have a TV, but nowadays everything's on, the, most good things are on the internet eventually. And, uh, but I'll, I'm now, you know, I'm trying to practice and practice what I preach. So <laughs> I'll do that and I'll see that, like, if I just stop in the middle, like, oh, you know, entertainment, witty, funny, or whatever, and I'll just land, and I'll realize, well, it's just what it is, and whatever it is, it's going to end, you know, and then, and if I make it more than what it is, I'm always disappointed when it ends, you know? So we really begin to, begin to get a sense of the value of equanimity, not building things up because we always get betrayed when we build things up. It's like falling in love, you know. I've been married a long time. But you know that feeling, whether it's falling in love with another person or falling in love with an idea or falling in love with this idea that we're finally going to change this country and become a better place. And I'm not saying we should be pessimistic, but the falling in love is dangerous. 
because we've built up something as a salvation, as like, this is going to save me. But nothing in the world will save us except relating to the world with non-attachment. But non-attachment, again, doesn't mean being distant. We can only realize non-attachment being intimate with each other, with the beauty of the world, with the difficulties of the world, with the body. We have to be intimate in order to be free of attachment. It's too easy to distance ourselves, which is a kind of aversion, and call it equanimity or freedom. But it's stressful to be disconnected because actually we're not ultimately disconnected. We're all right in the middle of the soup. We can imagine we're disconnected. We can imagine we're separate. And that imagining is stressful. Thinking we're apart from each other is stressful. Realizing that it's like this now and that non-reactivity, not hating it, not needing it, not evaluating it in terms of good or bad, but just seeing it for what it is, is so liberating. And it's actually the activity of love to just let everything be the way it is and to participate fully in it. And it's something we can discover in little ways, like just little interactions, hanging out with your dog. Like start with experiences that are relatively pleasant and see if you can be free in it, not dependent on it, not afraid of the pleasantness, but not dependent on the pleasantness, not wanting it or needing it to last, not expecting anything from it. It's like, I want my cat to snuggle up next to me, but I don't want it to lick my hand. (laughs) And, you know, the cat's 17 years old. She hasn't figured that out. (laughs) She licks my hand. I withdraw, you know. We can't make it work. (laughs) It's the same with our partners, you know. Despite all of our efforts, they remain who they are. (laughs) When will they get it? They don't, and nor do we, nor does the world. But there is a way of understanding that, like, oh yeah, she is, you know, this wild set of conditioning unfolding as it's supposed to. Same with the cat, same with me, same with everything else. All the beauty, all the misery, it's just stuff unfolding. And we can be right in the middle of that, free right in the middle of that. But we have to revolutionize our relationship to the world. It's a world, the world like uh, I think Sharon Salzberg said something. This is a rough paraphrase. The world is not perfect in the sense of giving us what we want. It's perfect to let go of. It's a perfect, this moment, the world of this moment is perfectly designed to not be attached to. It's a perfect setup for non-attachment. And it's a perfect Uh, It's perfectly wrong to get tight about the conditions in this moment. To either like them and want them to last or to reject them and want them to go away. That's the setup for suffering. So I'll leave it here. We have about 12 minutes. It would be nice to hear from you your own questions or experiences with dukkha, with this experience of the limitations or why you don't believe it. So what comes to mind? Yeah, Nick. Um, 
Today, I guess I had an experience of you've got limitations and kind of expectations of my family today. And uh, I was sitting there listening to a little talk, and I, mean, I think like a lot of people, there's a lot of some suffering around my relationship with my family, some tightness. And today, I realized that as I was sitting there listening to talk, that I really wanted them, like, I want our relationship to look a certain way. I wanted them to be a certain way. I didn't like things that they thought. I was like, I wish they thought this way. And it was really like stressful. I realized that if I turned kind of towards, like I, I had a moment where I kind of like, like, what is going on here? How, you know, I really expected I was participating in a way that was kind of off. It felt like off from the whole interaction and the conversation. And I kind of realized like, I'm not really listening to my family members or not like hearing them, seeing them for what they are. And I kind of dropped that. And it felt a lot easier after that for a while. So it was a pretty kind of simple moment, but it felt kind of like, it was like, well, like, kind of a big shift. It felt like a lot of suffering of our relationship, my relationship with them has just been because I've looked at them and trying to see them in a way that I want to be different than how they actually are. It was really nice to drop, drop that a little bit. Yeah, that's such a good example, Nick. This is how we get the scent of liberation, right? Liberation is such a big word, you know, and we can be idealistic about it, but it's an actual scent or an actual flavor where we see the heart or mind being bound up and then just through some fortunate skill or wisdom that arose in that moment, the heart released being bound up and it realized something, a little gradual awakening, it realized being bound up is unnecessary and it was all happening here. They didn't change, right? The shift happened in our own heart. And that, re- that, so it's like that experience many, many, many times over some years of practice makes a radical change in how we are in the world. Thanks for sharing that, Nick. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah. Oh, Doug. One of the biggest hindrances for me is I will see little increments of being at that place, you know, it goes up and down, but, but then I'm impatient, so one of the hindrances is not, I'm not going fast enough, and so forth, and it's helpful to myself, I said, it's all right, you know, take some satisfaction, in, or whatever the word is, to recognize that I'm not there, it's where I'm going, you know what I'm saying? Oh no, it's a really important point, and What Doug is saying is inevitable in our practice as we have some real success, like Nick described, you know, where we're relatively conscious, relatively awake when the heart puts down a load, then the ego is going to get excited about that. And it's going to start constructing an idea of me who's put down the load, which now we've become, now we have the sense of being a somebody who's dependent on putting down the load. So of course we're going to get impatient. We're going to want to rush it. We're going to wonder if somebody's further ahead than us in the putting down the load. All this neurotic stuff. But it wasn't because we put down the load. It was because the pleasant feeling, the pleasantness of non-attachment, the habit of ego, the momentum of ego, took that pleasantness personally and constructed a story of a me. And then everything, all that neurotic stuff. So just like you said, we want, instead of fixating on the idea of me who will be free, we're 
falling in love with the path of practice. You know, there is, in Buddhism, there is a place for this devotional energy, but it's not being devoted to some person who lived 2,500 years ago, like the Buddha. The devotion is to the path of practice. People who hang around here, including myself, we get a little sick of the word practice because it's used so much. And it can sound like, oh, you know, drudgery, we got to practice, we're all practitioners. But we want to we want to sort of hold it up as something we're so grateful for. Like, we're grateful that we can see this contraction in the mind and it can be dropped when it's seen clearly. It can be dropped because it's not necessary. There's another way, which is non-attachment, being intimate without judging the way it is. There is another way. And we can be so grateful and we can talk about the path more than the goal. And this is, you'll hear this here. We don't talk a lot about liberation or nibbana or nirvana. We talk about practicing and we're a practice community and we're grateful to have a community to practice. We're grateful to have a place to practice. But we have to, when we use that word practice, it has to have that sense of liberation without making a personal deal about it. Because then we start you know, creating castles in the sky and falling in love with some other, you know, something out there. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, Bakai. Um, I'm curious to hear from from your experience over the course of your life as a practitioner. Have there been certain points where you feel that your ordinary level of happiness has kind of risen? or dropped at points, or have you seen it more as a gradual thing? I mean, are there certain, I mean, and also hearing Buddha talk, or doing a little research of like certain points on the path, certain markers, have you felt that it's more gradual, or at some point do you really feel that your happiness kind of rises? Yeah, no, there have been insights, you know, so real shifts, and but a lot of that, those insights, what they do is that it makes the um, mind more trusting and more fearless about messiness. So it really, in a way, it allows us to sink more fully into our life. So I've, I've definitely noticed that. And the other thing I've noticed over the years, I've been practicing you know, pretty seriously for about 32 years now. And I notice... Uh, like a, a real happiness arising unexpectedly. So it's, it's that, like I mentioned, this unconditioned happiness. It's for no good reason. It's like, oh no, it's a busy day. Or I've got all this to do that I don't want to do. So it's like surprising. Like, why does the heart feel so light, buoyant? Why does the body feel so light and buoyant? And to really, it's shocking because you know we the the habit of associating ha- uh, happiness with the particular conditions is so strong that it's just interesting for me now to just notice that like oh I'm actually involved in neurotic activity but it's not a personal problem or I'm actually you know not taking care of my body in the way that I should but I'm happy. 
you know, I, I don't, the heart doesn't feel burdened or weighed down with it. Or I don't, you know, things at common ground are falling apart as they seem to be, you know, every once in a long while. But it's like there's just a lot more space around that. So th- that's one of the places I notice it. And I notice I'm not as interested in whether I'm happy. You know, I'm just, I sort of feel like life, you know, this stream, it's just something to give ourselves to, to immerse ourselves in, not to hold back, and to let it take its course, and just to trust that. So that's a shift too, then like really trying to get my, like I've really shifted in like, in my early years, I mean, for many, many years, I really feeling dependent on my practice to save me. And now I don't feel that way. And uh, I don't, I mean, I, I usually don't miss a day of practice, but every once in a while I do, and it doesn't, I don't care if I miss a day of practice, even though it's rare. I don't want to encourage people to miss days of practice. <laughs> For many years, I did miss days of practice, but every once in a while, I do, and I and I sort of surprising. Well, yeah, that's okay, because because I ha- I see right in that moment I have a choice. I can be the one who's a Dharma teacher who should be practicing every day. It's like that's a painful thing to be identified with, you know. So I'm not going to be identified with that. I don't have to pick up that facade and sort of live out those expectations. Yeah, Lewis. I, I keep noticing, especially lately, that you know you you can grow through your practice and reach you know a certain level, and then that becomes the new normal, out of which more stuff arises that's challenging. Um, and lately, I'd say over the past maybe second half of this year, because of things that are happening in this country, I've just been having this struggling with uh, some aspects of despair or rage and just trying to be with that in a way that uh, doesn't really take me to a place I don't really want to go. and I, I think one of the insights that I got is that the ways that, a lot of times the ways that we're different that causes us to be oppressed or abused has a tendency to tell us that those ways of being different are some kind of ultimate reality. And it's hard to break through that because it hurts. And and the hurt gets in the way of really having access to our best thinking. And that's a powerful teaching on the first noble truth. It's we, this is, if it were easy, we'd all be free. But because, exactly as Lewis says, it's the pain that makes it seem so rational to be identified with our experience. Because the pain is real. I mean, it's as real as anything is, obviously. And, but it, we misinterpret the meaning of the pain. Because the heart is sensitive, right? Our heart is sensitive to so many things, like injustice. And because of that sensitivity, 
we we draw the wrong conclusion, right? We that taking it personally is skillful. That's the conclusion we draw, and we think that there's no other way forward but to take it personally. But actually, taking it personally gets in the way of responding and engaging, right? Because it makes the mind rigid. It narrows the mind. So we have to find a way of being willing to be sensitive to the pain without being confused by it. Or in a more general way, sensitive, intimate with the imperfections of the world without being confused by the imperfections. And you know, we get tight when we see the, what's wrong with the world. We feel existentially threatened by it. And that's, that's that misunderstanding. We can be like, in, actually, I mean, I'm going to just say this and then we'll have to end. We can actually be enlivened by the mess we're in. The mess, you know, in terms of the racial injustices in our country, the mess in terms of global warming, the mess in terms of all kinds of inequities that are built in, the mess within our own personality and all the sort of neurotic tendencies, obsessive tendencies, this kind of tendencies that we have. So we can be intimate with all of that without personalizing it. We can actually see that more and more clearly and feel like, wow, what a great place to wake up and to be free, right in the middle of that. You have a last word? Okay, and then we have to end. The thing that happened within the past day or so is that I'm beginning to look at the distress as a signal that something's trying to be known. So be patient with it or look at it or something's trying to present it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. Like what is there here to, what's the teaching here? Or what's here to learn? And it's always, birth into some new understanding is always painful. Because we have to be steady with what we've been running from or reacting to for a long time. We have to be relaxed and soft with it. So it's the hardest thing in the world. So let's just take a few seconds to let go of the words. Just enough time to take a breath or two together. And we can appreciate the great lineage of women and men who have done their practice before us. They had complicated, busy lives, as we do. And we're the fortunate recipients of this lineage of compassion and wisdom. So it's our turn now, in our busy lives, to do the best we can to cultivate, to investigate our heart in this way and to become causes for real transformation and peace. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.